0: If you have your Bible this morning, would you turn with me to the book of John, chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided by the church, you'll find it on page 981. John chapter 1. As you turn there, come let us adore Him in prayer together. Who is like you, O Lord, you who are from everlasting to everlasting, you who are creator and upholder of all things, you the very source of life and light. We thank you for the opportunity to look into your word and in so doing looking into your heart, into you. We pray that you might open yourself up to us, that you might give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would meet with us this morning You know our hearts, you know our feebleness, you know our need. And so we ask, Lord, that you would supply our every need according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus this morning. That you would free us from distraction. That you would give us grace to draw near to you, even as you draw near to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. As you might remember from last week, uh, when we looked at John chapter one verses one to five, uh, we explored the the idea, the reality that the book of John was written with a specific purpose. The apostle John, inspired by the Spirit of God, wrote this book with a particular aim, which he records in chapter twenty verse thirty-one. There he says, "These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God." and that by believing, you may have life in His name. That is what everything in this Gospel account is driving toward. That you and I would read it, and in coming to the end, we might be convinced that there is one, Jesus Christ, who is able to deliver us from death and give us everlasting life. Last week, we looked at the first five verses of John, where he begins his argument in eternity past, in speaking about the Word. And we saw in those verses that the Word is the second person of the Trinity. The God of this universe has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, the Word, and Spirit, each truly God in their being, and yet each distinct from one another in their personhood. This second person, the Word, was revealed in the opening words of this book as the creator and sustainer of all things that exist and the source of life and light for all. Now, if you try to draw a line between those first few verses, verses 1 to 5, and the purpose statement in chapter 20 that I just read, you may notice that there seems to be a huge disconnect. In the opening verses, we're told about one who is the very source of life itself and who is the animating, life-giving source to all the world. This would seem to indicate that since we are made and sustained by the giver of life, we have life. But in chapter 20, John says that his aim in this book is to convince you and I that there is someone in whose name we can escape death and have life. So John assumes that his reader, you and I this morning, knows something that is crucial for understanding this disconnect. He assumes that we know that there is more to life than mere physical existence. He assumes that anyone who reads this book is clearly alive, or else they wouldn't be able to read it. And yet, everyone who is alive and reading the book of John is also in need of life. So John assumes that we know that there is a kind of life that goes beyond mere biological function. That there is a sort of life that is more than mere physical existence, And he aims in his book to show us what that life is and where it can be found. Have you come to that realization as you sit here this morning? Have at some point you come to that realization that there is more to life than just physical existence and more than what the world out there might be able to offer you? A great career, the accumulation of material things, the feeding of our bellies, the thrill of fun experiences, social media worthy moments, and even the relationships that we have with loved ones. Do you have a yearning in your soul that there is more to life than these things? That there is a different sort of life than that sort of life? I can remember the first time that I began to have that yearning. In 2007, 2008, I was in my first year of university, and I was finally, after very wayward years in my youth, uh, following the path that I thought I was supposed to take. I was getting my education, I was looking forward to a life that included uh, an enjoyable career, hopefully a family, a home, cars, vacations, social life. Even as a university student, I had what many would have called a great life. I was making money, I had friends, I was never in want for anything. I had a great family. I was in the early stages of what, by all societal measures, would turn out to be a desirable life. But it was at that same time, as I had all those good things in my life and on the horizon of my life, that I began to experience A deep existential crisis. I began to have those childlike curiosities assert themselves in my mind in a way that was inescapable. Is that it's all about? Is there more to look forward to than those things? Where did I come from? Where am I going? And most significant to me at the moment, why am I here? There were a few things that I knew for certain. I knew there was a God. I didn't have enough faith to believe what the evolutionists would tell me that all of this around us came from an explosion of matter uh, that had some kind of starting point, but we don't know when it was or how it got there. I didn't have enough faith to believe that. I knew also that I was supposed to be living a moral life. I hadn't read the Bible much, but the law of God was written on my conscience and it condemned me for doing things I knew I wasn't supposed to. So in those days, I made it my aim to remedy this problem and thought that by so doing, I would finally find the fulfillment and purpose in my life that I was meant to have and was missing. So I was in school, as I mentioned, I was minoring in philosophy, and I also began to make friends with people of different religions, major world religions, Muslim friends, Buddhist friends, Hindu friends. Through all of my reading and documentary watching and conversations, I became convinced that in order to truly know God and live out my purpose in life, I simply needed to be a good person. That's the golden rule in life, I was told. The thing that all religions have in common. Love your neighbor as yourself. Each religion had their varying roadmaps and definitions of what God expects from me, but they all had the same underlying premise. Being good leads to knowing God. So I set myself to the task. I would ascend the hill of morality and at its peak, I would find God. Surely if every religion was saying the same thing, then it must be true. By my disciplined and cleaned up lifestyle, I would reach God. If you've ever gone down that path in hopes of reaching that goal then you know how the story ends. I kept running into this fundamental problem that I could not escape from. I was a sinful person. I loved doing things that were wrong. As much as there was a part of me that acknowledged what was right and even, in a sense, desired to do it, I couldn't, as hard as I tried, be good. And therefore, I couldn't, as hard as I tried, find God. I eventually opened up a Bible and began to read a bit of it each night before I went to bed. And after a number of months of doing this, I came to realize that this book, this book that we've read this morning and are reading this morning, taught a message that at the most crucial point was in stark opposition to the rest. Like many major world religions, the Bible teaches that man was created by God. And that there has been a fundamental chasm between created humanity and the Creator due to our disobedience. And that this disobedience is the reason for the brokenness and chaos in the world. There are many religions that would affirm everything that I just said. But it is the answer to this problem that causes the message of Scripture and the message of John's Gospel in particular this morning to shine with hope and stand apart from the rest. I heard one preacher say once, there are basically only two kinds of religion in the world. Those based on human achievement, and those based on divine accomplishment. Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and all others would teach that there are steps that can be taken, things that can be done to overcome our corruption or our sin. And bridge the chasm and make our way back to God. The Bible contains the only message which which proclaims that our only hope of reconciliation with God is found in the work of God himself. This work is seen as clear as anywhere in scripture in the words of our passage today. So if you will, read with me in John chapter 1. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 5. came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's right hand, He has made Him known. These verses here, 14 to 18, is the the last section of John's prologue like we discussed last week, uh, where he lays out the fundamental assertions and arguments that he makes about the way to find true life. Like the words that we looked at last week, John will unfold and prove the claims that he makes here throughout the rest of his book. And here in these verses, he picks up his thought about the word that we looked at last week in verses 1 to 5. And he now seeks to answer the question of how it is that we can find life in this one. And the answer is truly astonishing and is truly unique. Rather than pointing us to a solution found within ourselves, whereby we might reform ourselves and find God, we see a God who comes to find us. Verse 14, the word became flesh. John, with these words, draws our attention to that point in history That the main point of history, the one by whom and for whom all things exist, enters the scene. He is speaking here of the incarnation, that word literally, the infleshment. the word becoming flesh. The very thing that we celebrate at Christmas every year. The word became flesh. What this means is that the eternal God, the one who has no beginning and no end... The radiance of the Father and the exact imprint of His nature took on the form of a man and came to this world. He entered into the humanity that He created. And in becoming flesh, the Word never ceased to be what He had always been. But He became something that He never was before. He became a man. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. That's the way that the Apostle Paul puts it in the book of Galatians. This one who was born of a woman is the fulfillment of the promise that God made many generations ago to Abraham. He said to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The fullness of time had come, And the promised offspring would now come forth to bless the nations. But this promised one would not be any ordinary person, would not be any ordinary descendant of Abraham, but would in fact be the word, the eternal word made flesh. By supernatural conception, a woman would give birth to a man who is truly man, but is also truly God. We begin to see how this problem of the infinite chasm between God and man that must be bridged if we are to truly know life is beginning to to take shape. The Word became flesh. God became man, but in such a way that He remained unstained from the sin of man, the very sin that prohibits us from crossing that chasm and approaching God. if we aren't careful, we might miss how loudly these few words are flashing with bright lights. Love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Those are probably the most well-known words from the entire Bible in John 3.16. And here in chapter 1, we see John's earliest expression of that glorious truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. For the Son so loved the world that he became flesh. In order to at least attempt to grasp what love is displayed in God giving the world his Son, I want to read for you these words from an old sermon that I've read many times, and maybe you've heard me read it before in the past, but these words never get old. It is a special consideration to elevate the love of God in giving Christ, that in giving Him, He gave the richest jewel in His cabinet, a mercy of greatest worth and most inestimable value. Heaven itself is not, mo- is not so valuable and precious as Christ is. He is the better half of heaven, and so the saints say of Him, Whom have I in heaven but Thee? Ten thousand, thousand worlds, says one. As many worlds as angels can number and then a new world of angels can multiply would not all be the bulk of a balance to weigh Christ's excellency, love, and sweetness. Oh, what a fair one, what an only one, what an excellent, lovely, ravishing one is Christ. Put the beauty of 10,000 paradises like the Garden of Eden into one, Put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness in one. Oh, what an excellent thing that would be. And yet, it would be less to that fair and dearest well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain compared to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. Christ is heaven's wonder and earth's wonder. Now for God to bestow the mercy of mercies, the most precious thing in heaven or earth, upon poor sinners, and as great, as lovely, as excellent as his son was, yet not to account him too good to bestow upon us, what manner of love is this? The word became flesh the most valuable gift that God could ever give. The one who is most dear to him, he parted with for our sake. And the son himself freely chose to become flesh in order that he might lay down his life for us. And the spirit so worked to create a body for this glorious one to inhabit. And in this we see the threefold love of God in the word becoming flesh. Also, consider with me why he came. John says next that the word dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. To the first century Jewish reader, this language would have immediately conveyed a lot more than we tend to get from our English translation. That word dwelt literally means pitched his tent or tabernacled among us. And for the first century reader, they would hear these words calling to their remembrance the accounts from the Old Testament about the tabernacle that the Israelites were told by God to erect in the wilderness as they traveled from the slavery of Egypt to the land of God's promise. It was the tent of meeting in the center of the encampment where the presence of God would manifest. It was the meeting place between heaven and earth, between man and God. And here, John uses that same language to convey something glorious about the word who became flesh. He would be the new tabernacle. He would be the new Temple of meeting between God and man. This is why, in the very next chapter, Jesus himself refers to himself with this same language. When he was confronted by the religious leaders of his day and he was asked to perform a sign to prove his authenticity and his claims of being the Son of God, he responded by saying this Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But, John says, he was speaking about the temple of his body. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, becoming the temple of God, the meeting place between heaven and earth. Jesus came to bridge the chasm between God and man and become the one by whom fallen humanity could enter into the presence of the Holy God. Again, if we aren't careful, we will miss something so significant that speaks to the incredible love of God in giving His Son. Jesus came and pitched His tent among us, took on our humanity not just for a day or even a lifetime, but this everlasting, eternally begotten Son of God took on flesh, never to disrobe from it again. In dwelling among us, Jesus has forever taken on human flesh. He, what, he has, in the incarnation, wed himself to humanity in his becoming flesh. He chose to dwell among a world and in a flesh of a human race who did not deserve his coming and did not deserve His deliverance, and for the most part, did not even acknowledge it or welcome it when He did come. Just a few verses earlier from our passage in John 1.11, it says, He, the Word, came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. The very source of life, the very One for whom every person exists, came to His creation, and in large part, was met with either indifference or even worse, disdain. But in love, He came. And He was undeterred. Listen to these words from the late 19th century that portray so beautifully the love and grace of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Christ, who in eternity rested motherless upon the Father's bosom and in time rested fatherless upon a woman's bosom, clasping the ancient of days who had become the infant of days. What a deep descent. From the heights of glory to the depths of shame. From the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth. From exaltation to humiliation. From the throne to the tree. From dignity to debasement. From worship to wrath. From the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined, born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling cloths of poverty. No room for him who made all rooms. No place for him who made and knows all places. Oh, the deep humiliation of the creator, born of the creature. But in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descended to us. In the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, he began a path down a one-way road from which he would never turn back. He took on our humanity with all of its pains and sorrows, all of its temptations and trials, all of its wounds and woes. He took on humiliation and rejection. He subjected himself to evil and corruption. He exposed himself to injustice and brutality. And he did so willingly, in love. For you and me, so that he might become the source of life and light for all who would put their trust in him. That he might be for us the temple of meeting between earth and heaven. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal son of God became the holy son of man, so that we who trust in him might share in his holiness and become eternal Sons of God. Eternal Son of God became the Holy Son of man so that we who trust in Him might share in His holiness and become eternal sons of God. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. And then the verse continues in John 1 11 and 12. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. By the same love of God the Father that sent His Son into the world to become flesh and dwell among us, and the same grace of the Son that compelled Him to willingly come and lay down His life to reunite heaven and earth, so the power of God's Spirit enabled people to see Jesus as he is, as the word, the eternal word made flesh. That's what John says next. You see there in verse 14, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And notice John doesn't make the point simply as a matter of fact or an account of history, but he speaks from firsthand knowledge and experience. When John met and began to follow Jesus during his earthly ministry, he knew that what he was witnessing was more than a mere man or prophet. He knew, as any faithful Jew would have in the first century, that God promised long before that a day was coming when he himself would appear and reveal his glory to all peoples. Isaiah 40 is an example of such an occasion where God foretells a day When peace would come to the earth with these words, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And John, in being a witness to the life and ministry of Jesus, understood himself to be living in the days of the fulfillment of that promise. Isaiah 53 says that it wasn't the Messiah's physical beauty or stature that would attract people to Him. And the account within the Gospel of the upbringing and origin story of Jesus the baby makes it clear that it wasn't His origin story that would mark Him out as the Savior of the world. He was born to poor parents in humble circumstances and lived the vast majority of His life in obscurity and ordinariness. But as John began to know and follow Jesus, as he listened to him speak with authority and extend forgiveness to people for their sins, he knew that this Jesus was more than just a rabbi or a prophet. The miracles that he was doing spoke of one who had a unique glory, the glory of the Lord. This is the reason for all the miracles that John records. This is why John states in chapter 2, after recording the first miracle that Jesus performed, where he turned water into wine, John says this, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The authority that Jesus demonstrated over creation Over sin and temptation, over people and nature, all together testify that this was the one promised by God and sent by God to deliver his people. That he did, in fact, come from the Father to the world. That's what Jesus himself says in John 5. He says, The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father, Has sent me. And these works convinced John that Jesus was, in fact, as he says, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That last part of the statement, full of grace and truth, is key to understanding the rest of the passage. In Jesus Christ, the only Son sent from the Father, there was fullness of grace and truth. In the Messiah who came from the Father's side into the world, there was the full measure, the full expression, the full and complete and final revelation of the grace and truth of God. In Him was not the only revelation of these things, but in Him was the full revelation of these things. What God had revealed of His gracious and true nature and purpose throughout all the scriptures were leading up to this final, and complete revelation. This is what some call progressive revelation, that God has spoken and has spoken truly and graciously throughout all history, but has revealed His truth and grace incrementally, progressively. And it is in His Son, Jesus Christ, that God has finally and fully spoken openly to all the world. That's what's captured in the opening words of the book of Hebrews, where it says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And John is here testifying that he, and not just he, for he says, we Uh, We have seen His glory. So, meaning Him and all the others that came to know and follow Jesus in the days of His earthly ministry and in the first century of the church. That they all not only saw this unique glory emanating from Jesus, but that they experienced this glory in their very souls. Look at those next words after the parentheses. Look with me at verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. John and the other first century Christians had not just beheld a unique glory in Jesus, but that unique glory was communicated to their souls. It wasn't just witnessed and observed by them, but was given to them to share in it. Jesus Christ acts uniquely in history, not just revealing the glory of God to the world, but bringing the glory of God to the world. God had from ancient of days been working graciously, meaning undeservedly, to undo the curse that necessarily fell on humanity through sin. He began with a promise to Eve. If you remember in Genesis 3, what is often referred to as the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, the first hint of hope that God was at work to undo the curse, that though she would experience the curse of sin, she would have a descendant that would one day crush the head of Satan and undo the darkness and death in the world. He then made gracious promises to Noah and then Abraham that this descendant, this offspring, would come from their lineage. He then worked through Jacob to create a people called Israel and worked uniquely through them in history to prepare the way for the fulfillment of this promise. He revealed his purpose and directed their path through the prophets. He would graciously send them to speak on his behalf. And he would shape them according to his moral virtue by giving them the law through Moses. All of these were acts of grace by which God called and shaped a people that would prepare the way for the day that God himself would visit humanity in the fullness of his glory in order to graciously redeem them. From the curse of sin john the apostle lived in that day and the believers of the first century experienced and received that grace john says they received grace upon grace for the law was given through moses grace and truth came through jesus christ john is not saying that the law was not an expression of grace it was He was not saying that the law wasn't good and true. It was. But John says that in Jesus, the world received grace upon grace, or grace in place of grace. Through the law, God graciously revealed his character to his people in order that they may know his ways and walk in them. But the grace of the law was lacking. In that even though it could reveal the moral uprightness of God and could call the people to walk in that uprightness, it did not have within it the grace or power to enable them to. It made them aware of their failures, but provided no final and lasting remedy for it. It acted as a teacher that revealed the flaws of the people and the lack of life that was a consequence of their flaws, but was unable to correct Those flaws. Listen to how the Apostle Paul communicates the value of the law in the book of Galatians. He says, Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was indeed an expression of the grace of God. The fact that He constrained the moral evil of the human heart with His commands was a gift. To the world, Imagine for a second a society with complete lawlessness, where the base passions and sinful desires of the human heart are the only things that govern behavior. This would be utter chaos and destruction. So it was in fact a gracious thing that God gave the law through Moses. That law that even until this day acts as the basis for the legal code of countries all around the world. But the law was not the final or full revelation of His grace. He would exchange that expression of grace for the fullness of His grace. That would not just act as a moral constraint on the sin of our hearts, but would in fact absolve us of the sin in our hearts and cleanse us from it. That is what happened in the coming of the Word made flesh. God has come to us in the full expression of His grace and in truth, in the person of Jesus Christ and revealed Himself for all the world to see and to receive. Do you see the glory of Jesus this morning? Have you received from His fullness the grace of forgiveness and holiness in life in place of the grace of the law which can only reveal sin, and judgment? Notice that John says, from His fullness we have received grace upon grace. Not that all have received. There were many in Jesus' day, even many religious people and synagogue-attending Jews that saw everything that John saw and that the other believers saw and did not believe in Him or receive the fullness of grace that He offers. There were many who heard his teachings and witnessed his miracles, and yet refused to truly come to him and receive grace. You are here this morning at church, which is a good thing. You are at least convinced of the reality that there is more to life than what can be found out there. There is more to your created purpose than mere existence and experience. But are you here this morning because you think that mere church attendance will somehow prove able to reform you and make you the person you should be? We as a church have nothing to offer outside of this, that in Jesus Christ is the fullness of grace and truth, and he is able to forgive you and grant you true and everlasting life based not on your merits, but on his own merits and who he is. He is God in the flesh, who came to earth to be the truly upright one, never wavering or failing to uphold the law in any way. He is the perfect man that bridges the chasm between the holy God and the sinful world. And in his fullness of grace, this Holy One laid down his life to pay for the sins that you and I are guilty of. He offered his innocent life on a cross to be punished under the weight of our sin. In Jesus Christ, the truth of God's holy law and the grace of God's holy love met. And he fully and finally dealt with the sin that kept us from the presence of God. In his resurrection, Jesus showed himself victorious over that sin and now offers himself, his fullness of grace and truth, to you to receive today. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's how John finishes this opening prologue of his book. Ever since the fall of humanity into sin, no one could ascend the holy hill of God and behold him. No one could cross the chasm into his unveiled presence and live. But this God, in the fullness of time, sent forth his eternally begotten Son into the world. Jesus left the Father's side and came to our side. He left his home in heaven where the fullness of the knowledge of God is and came to earth to make the fullness of the knowledge of God known. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and he has shown his glory full of grace and truth. This is the truth that changed everything for me back in 2008. 2008. After a year of trying to reach God through various versions of law-abiding, I became utterly discouraged and defeated. I remember even saying to my sister at the time, I just want to be good, but I couldn't. I knew what I should be, but I came to know that I couldn't be that in my own strength. It was then that God revealed His glory to me in Jesus Christ, the fullness of His holy truth and the goodness of his holy love broke into my heart like, a, like a, coast guard, a coast guard coming to save me from my drowning and my inability to swim. He laid hold of me and from the fullness of his love and truth and grace, I have received grace of undeserved rescue and truth of unwavering faithfulness. What I thought I began as my journey back to God ultimately was re- revealed to me, to be God's journey to me. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became man and became for us the tabernacle wherein we would meet Him. This last week of Advent, as you prepare your heart to celebrate the gift of God in Jesus Christ, may you behold in Him and see in Him a God who didn't come for the law-abiding, who have it all together and simply just need a little nudge along their way toward Him. He came, the Word became flesh, to rescue the weak and the weary, the sinful and utterly helpless. He came as light to the dark world and life to the lifeless. He came so that we who were made for Him might know Him. He came full of grace and truth, revealing the heart of God that desires our highest good. And that highest good is He Himself. Let's pray. Lord, there's truly no one like You. We confess all of us are weak and needy. And we praise you, Lord, for the great supply of grace and truth and life and light in Jesus Christ. Would you grant us all here the gift of faith, to believe in his name, to believe upon him that we might have life. Would you open our eyes, either for the first time or even wider than ever before, to behold him in his glory, his unique glory, to worship him with all of our heart, to love him with all of our mind, soul, and strength. Grant us, Lord, a proper orientation around Christ as we celebrate this Christmas. Grant us to know the true joy of life in him. In Jesus' name, amen.